Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On June 7, 1930, the film Hell's Angels premiered in Los Angeles, California. The film industry had only just emerged from its infancy and was becoming one of the most lucrative trades in the country. More than 25,000 people gathered outside of Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. The massive crowd was eager to support the new war movie and get a glimpse of its glamorous star, 19-year-old Jean Harlow. Her high heels emerged from her limo and touched down on the red carpet, and the onlookers erupted in applause. Every member of the public, press, and Hollywood elite were suddenly bound together by one common element. They had all fallen under Jean Harlow's spell. As she elegantly made her way past the line of photographers in a shimmering white satin dress, the crowd furrowed their brows at the man who followed behind her. They were expecting a fellow star of the screen and someone who matched Jean's striking beauty. And while they recognized him, they couldn't help but be a bit shocked. He was nearly twice her age, his hair was thin, and he was a bit on the shorter side. The tuxedo he wore did not flatter his figure either. But at the time, this man was even more well-known than Gene Harlow. His name was Paul Byrne, and he was one of the most beloved executives at MGM, one of the most powerful studios in Hollywood. Over the past 10 years, he had written, directed, and produced countless films and earned himself a reputation as one of the most generous figures in the industry. Paul had noticed Jean's preternatural ability as a performer a few years earlier, and he had championed her ever since. He even helped secure her breakout role in Hell's Angels, and along the way, he developed feelings for her. This was the couple's first public outing, and it sent shockwaves through Hollywood. The up-and-coming starlet on the arm of the seasoned industry veteran. It was like something out of a film that Gene might star in someday. But this picture-perfect romance would come to an abrupt and devastating end only two years later. In 1932, when Paul's career was just reaching its peak, he was found dead in their bedroom. There was a cryptic note nearby that made it look like a suicide. But Jean and many others weren't so sure that the wound was self-inflicted. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the death of Paul Byrne, the celebrated director, writer, and producer, who was one of the film industry's early superstars. And while his career may have been fruitful, his personal life was marked by tragedy, deceit, and ultimately, a brutal and puzzling death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Paul Byrne was born on December 3, 1889, in Wandsbek, Germany. His parents, Julius and Henrietta, provided a wonderful life for Paul and his six siblings, but like so many other European families during that time, they yearned for more, for opportunity, for America. So, on July 28, 1898, Paul and his family stepped aboard the SS Pennsylvania and set their sights for New York City. Luckily, they were far from the only family of German immigrants to relocate to Manhattan. Soon after arriving, nine-year-old Paul and his siblings enrolled in a public school. At first, Paul was withdrawn and had trouble feeling at home. Everything was new and foreign to him. However, Paul found a way to make himself at home in a less traditional sense. While he had trouble in math and science classes, he became a voracious reader, gulping down novels like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Gulliver's Travels. As he began to immerse himself into these timeless works of fiction, he felt like he truly belonged. The books he read in school told tales of young people who overcame adversity and prevailed against all odds. It made the struggles of a young immigrant boy living in the fast-paced world of Manhattan seem that much more manageable. Paul gained confidence throughout his teenage years, and by the time he was 18, it felt like his life finally started to take shape in America. But that year, in 1907, his entire family was dealt a devastating blow. Dad! Dad! We started Moby Dick today. It's the most wonderful story. It starts with... Uh, Right. Is everything okay? You seem tired. Yes, of course. I'm just having trouble trying to... Dad? Dad? After heading to the hospital, Julius was informed that he had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is commonly known today as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Back in 1907, there was no treatment available. All the family could do after receiving the diagnosis was try and make things as comfortable as possible for the man as his condition steadily deteriorated. By 1908, Paul's father had to move into hospice care. Things went from bad to worse. After three months on a respirator, doctors realized Julius had reached the point of no return. 
On October 10th, Julius died quietly in his hospital bed. The family was crestfallen, most of all young Paul, who'd idolized his hardworking, generous father. But the 18-year-old didn't sit in his grief for long. He knew that his dad's ultimate aspiration was to move to America and start a new life. Against all odds, he'd made his dream a reality. Paul promised himself he'd do the same. His interest in works of fiction drew him to the stage, and he dreamed of becoming an actor. So on September 13, 1909, 20-year-old Paul auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And despite his thick German accent, the judges were immediately charmed by young Paul's dramatic instinct and charisma. He was accepted and began classes in October. This period of Paul's life was pivotal. In addition to acting, the school also gave him the opportunity to help with stage management and production. He quickly realized that even though he was a fine actor, his true calling was behind the scenes. Paul made the confusing work of a stage manager look easy. After he graduated with his acting degree, the Academy offered him a job managing student productions. Paul didn't know it at the time, but this opportunity would completely change the course of his life. In the spring of 1912, Paul helped oversee auditions for the incoming class of actors. On May 8th, a woman standing at 5 foot 3 inches with fiery auburn hair took the stage. Paul was immediately smitten. Thank you, Miss Millette. That will be all. Thank you so much for your time. Who was that? What was her name? <laughs> Easy does it, Paul. Please, give me something here. I've never seen someone like that in my entire life. She has to be the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And that hair, enchanting. Her name is Dorothy. Dorothy Millette. I'll introduce you if you get back to the lighting booth and quit bothering me. Deal. <clears throat> All right, next up, please take the stage. At the time, Dorothy Millette was 26 years old, recently divorced, and living at the Manhattan Square Hotel. Once Paul convinced her to go out with him, their connection was instantaneous and electric. But as enamored as Paul was, there were certain things that concerned him about Dorothy. He never felt as though he really knew her. Every time she revealed a piece of her past, the story seemed to change. To you my love. This wine is lovely. Nothing compared to what we had around the house growing up in Paris, of course. Paris? I thought you grew up in Indianapolis. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> what a silly slip of the tongue. We vacationed there from time to time, but no, my childhood is all blur of long walks down the Seine, trips to the Musée d'Orsay. You grew up in Paris, but would go on vacation in Indianapolis? Honey, would it be devilish to get some cheesecake after that decadent meal? You know how my sweet tooth can be. Oh, um, yes, sure. Let me just get the waiter. It's no surprise that Paul was able to ignore his girlfriend's more troubling attributes. His life was picking up steam in a way that he never could have anticipated. He was madly in love and had just been accepted into a new group that took him across the Northeast performing and stage managing on a regular basis. 
But just as his career on the stage began to take shape, he saw an ad in the paper that called him to the screen. The Conteal Film Company was hosting a script-writing contest in Toronto, Canada. Paul had never considered becoming a writer, but when he saw that ad, he was instantly reminded of the stories he read during those early years in America and of the way they comforted him when he was at his lowest. He thought that one day maybe he could write something that'd inspire future generations the way his favorite books had. Perhaps it wasn't the wisest decision, but he had to try. At the age of 23, Paul left the city that he had called home for the past 15 years and made his way to Toronto with Dorothy at his side. He felt confident, despite the fact that the silent film industry had barely proven itself to be stable. Also, he'd never written a script before. But when Paul's father put his family on a ship to come to America, he didn't know anything for sure. It was pure intuition. And if that was good enough for his father, it was good enough for Paul. Coming up, Paul Byrne arrives in Toronto and his career in film begins. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. In 1912, 23-year-old Paul Byrne traveled from his home in New York City to Toronto, Canada, in hopes of winning a screenwriting competition. His beloved girlfriend, Dorothy Millette, was at his side. He didn't win the contest, but his submission still got him a full-time job as a screenwriter for the Conteal Film Company. Paul loved working on scripts and was thrilled to see a few of his stories go into production. It was addicting to see his words turn into silent films right before his very eyes. But this particular stint did not last long. After Paul worked there for a few months, the Conteal Company came under fire for unfair treatment of its employees. After an exciting summer in Toronto, Paul quit his job and returned to Manhattan. Even though his first brush with the film world didn't go as smoothly as Paul would have hoped, he knew this was what he wanted to do with his life. So once back in New York, he started looking for new jobs in the industry. He managed to catch the attention of Joseph M. Shank, 
who operated an array of movie houses in the New York area. Shank was a true businessman, far better than the amateurs Paul was working with back in Toronto. Shank sent Paul to work at one of his properties, the Yorkville Theater on East 86th Street. The Yorkville was one of New York City's most prominent theaters, and under Paul's supervision, its popularity skyrocketed. Paul was responsible for everything from maintaining the seats and projectors to the theater's programming. As such, he was frequently in touch with filmmakers and executives who wanted their movies shown at the Yorkville. Affable as ever, Paul charmed many of these high-level players in the industry and began to make a name for himself. By 1918, all that hobnobbing paid off, and 29-year-old Paul got a job offer from United Picture Theaters to become a contracted screenwriter. Paul's rapid ascent up the corporate ladder was indicative of film's rise to prominence in American popular culture. By the year 1920, film was the fastest-growing industry in the world, and Paul had cemented himself as one of its major players. While his career had never been better, back at home, things had never been worse. By the time Paul had accepted his job at United Picture, the behavior of his girlfriend, 36-year-old Dorothy Millette, had gone from eccentric to disturbing. Hey, sweetheart. You won't believe the script I've just been contracted to write. It's absolutely ridiculous. Dorothy, what are you wearing? Paul! Oh, this? It's nothing. Simply what the Lord has asked me to wear. All red, from the hat down to the dress. I think it suits me, don't you? When you say the Lord, what exactly do you mean? God, of course. Haven't I told you? He's accepted me into his innermost circle. It's quite lovely, really. We talk frequently, and he's been very supportive. Why don't you take a seat? I'll go and get you some water. Throughout that winter and into the summer of 1921, Dorothy grew more delusional, particularly about religion and God. By August, things had gotten so bad that she wasn't able to have a coherent conversation with Paul, or even recognize him. Feeling like he had no other choice, Paul had her committed to the Blythe Woods Sanitarium in Greenwich, Connecticut. He was beyond devastated. He'd seen his father wither away, and now it looked like the love of his life was slowly vanishing too. Paul's heart was big, and he loved people with such fervor that their pain became his pain. He felt physically ill without Dorothy. As he continued to crank out screenplays, he tried to shake the mental image of his beloved, locked up in an asylum. After eight torturous months, Dorothy was discharged. She seemed to have regained some level of lucidity, but still, she was a shadow of the woman that Paul had fallen in love with. Paul found a new home for Dorothy on the top floor of the Algonquin Hotel and supported her financially. She holed herself up in the luxurious room surrounded by magazines, Bibles, and racks upon racks of clothing. She only left for meals and the occasional walk. Paul kept tabs on her and dutifully replenished her bank account. But for his own sanity, he had to keep his distance. Before long, Paul couldn't walk the streets of Manhattan without thinking of Dorothy, or perhaps the woman that she once was. He was in an almost constant state of grief, mourning the loss of the truest love he'd ever known. 
Fortunately for Paul, it was right around this time in the early 1920s that many film studios started setting up shop all the way across the country, in Los Angeles. And because New York City now felt like a monument to the great tragedies of Paul's life, it wasn't difficult for him to follow the industry and move to California. In the fall of 1921, Paul packed his bags and headed for Culver City. He had been offered a job at one of the most promising film studios in the world, Goldwyn Pictures, which would soon become part of MGM. One of his first assignments in Los Angeles was to co-direct a Goldwyn film entitled Head Over Heels, and this was no small feat. The film was one of the most anticipated of that year, and most of that had to do with its leading lady, Mabel Normand. Mabel was one of the most sought-after actresses in Hollywood at the time, but her frequent drug use and dramatic week-long benders often caught more attention than her on-screen talents. As Paul watched Mabel on set, perpetually on the brink of collapse, he might have been reminded of Dorothy, who was still cooped up in a New York hotel room on his dime. Or maybe he just needed a distraction. Whatever it was, he fell for Mabel but things didn't quite pan out as he had hoped. And cut. All right, everyone, take five. Mabel, would you mind sticking around for a quick word? (laughs) Oh, a quick word about something strictly related to the film, I'm sure. Would you just come over here, please? What is it, lover boy? Come on, I sent you those flowers over a week ago and you still haven't gotten back to me. Look, Paul. You're one of the good ones. You're one of the only people on these sets who's ever taken the time to court me, instead of just showing up in my dressing room with a fifth of bourbon. So? Isn't that all the more reason to be with me? I'd eat you alive, Paul. Trust me, I'm saving you an awful lot of trouble. And while Paul's romantic advances were denied, the two developed a strong friendship. Even though Paul's presence was a good influence on Mabel, as the filming of Head Over Heels continued, the young starlet's drinking and drug use escalated. Pretty soon, directing became a secondary job for Paul. His primary role on set became babysitting the starlet, talking her out of her constant drug-induced haze. He tried his best, but Mabel's addiction tanked the production. Her performance was spotty, and the film was released without much publicity. This only sent Mabel spinning further into oblivion. Pretty soon, there wasn't anything Paul could do. She was on a path towards self-destruction, and she wasn't slowing down for anyone. By the winter of 1921, Paul and some other close friends of Mabel's had her committed to a sanitarium. Here, Paul was, once again, crestfallen as someone he loved disappeared behind asylum gates. He felt trapped in an unending spiral of trauma and loss. But it was under these conditions that Paul did some of his best work. After Head Over Heels flopped, he turned the failure into momentum and became one of MGM's most prolific producers. He helped to elevate the studio to the top of Hollywood's hierarchy and his salary reflected his importance. He was making close to $1.5 million per year by today's standards. 
He still sent money to support Dorothy every month, but at this point his fortune was so large and his life was so busy that he could almost forget about her. And to further distance himself from the memory of his first love, Paul started courting a new woman. Her name was Barbara Lamar, and much like Mabel, she was a hot commodity in Hollywood. In fact, her beauty was the thing of legends. The story was that she arrived in Los Angeles in 1914 at the age of 17. She began working at a burlesque lounge, which people of her age were prohibited from doing. After being reported, the young Lamar was arrested. The salacious case caused quite a stir within the local Los Angeles media, especially when the judge gave his final ruling. You are too beautiful to be allowed alone in the big city. You are too beautiful to be without constant protection from your parents at your age. The girl was ordered to leave the city because, in the judge's eyes, she was too good-looking to survive there on her own. The ruling seems more than a bit sexist by today's standards, but it did function as quite the endorsement for Barbara Lamar's beauty. The young woman wanted to take advantage of the publicity, and there was no better way to do it than becoming an actress. After a few years starring in C-list films, Lamar got her big break. She was cast in a film adaptation of The Three Musketeers, and it just so happened that one of Paul Byrne's close friends was directing. Paul met Lamar on the Musketeers set, and much like everyone else who laid eyes on her, he was enchanted. All throughout the fall and summer of that year, he pursued her relentlessly with flowers and jewelry. Finally, in the winter of 1922, Lamar gave Paul a chance. I can tell you have something you want to say to me. Go ahead. I bet I can even guess what it is. What? Give it your best shot. You're going to say that I'm not like the other execs, and that you're worried that if we become involved, that might get in the way of our professional relationship, which isn't something you'd want to do because you really would love to work together someday. Right? I can see I'm not the first actress you've dated. <laughs> Far from it. Mabel Normand. I read all about her. Well, she never even let me get this far. Lord knows I tried. Maybe you're sick of hearing it, but it is true, you know. You have a kind heart. There are very few people in this business that I can say that about. Well, let me put that heart to good use then. Otherwise it might shrivel up and go cold, just like all the other big wigs on the lot. You don't want that to happen, do you? <laughs> From that moment onward, the two were inseparable, and it's good that Lamar had Paul on her side because her fame kept climbing after the release of The Three Musketeers. She was one of Hollywood's finest talents, and Paul was one of the most sought-after studio executives. The two seemed like an unstoppable couple. However, in 1923, Lamar hurt her ankle and was prescribed morphine for the pain. In the blink of an eye, she developed a powerful addiction to the painkiller. And as if history was repeating itself once more, Paul had no choice but to sit back and watch as the woman he loved became unrecognizable. But this time around, he knew better. He knew that as much as he loved Lamar, she wasn't the same person he'd met on set back in 1922. So in 1924... When her addiction was at its apex, he made the difficult decision to part ways with her. 
Even though they were no longer romantically involved, Paul offered to cover Barbara's living expenses as she drifted in and out of rehab facilities, but the support didn't help, and her addiction continued to escalate. At this point, Paul was bankrolling both Barbara Lamar and Dorothy Millette as they both spiraled downward. He kept a constant line of communication going with Lamar, but he hadn't spoken to Dorothy in months. Even with Paul's assistance, Lamar's health continued to deteriorate. By 1925, she weighed only 80 pounds and could hardly function. Paul paid for a nurse to tend to her three days a week, but no amount of medical care could help. She was dying, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. On January 30th, 1926, Barbara Lamar died. To Paul, it felt inconceivable how the people he cared about would simply wither away. However, his family and friends would explain that his giving heart sought out people that he could try to fix. But it was not Paul's responsibility, nor within his ability, to fix these people. And it was time to make a change. Many hoped Paul would find perhaps another executive to settle down with, or someone outside of the film world in general. But Paul was a man of habit. By 1929, yet another starlet came into his periphery. While this story was becoming almost comically overdone at this point, this time it really did feel different. Jean Harlow was different, and after meeting her, Paul's life would never be the same. Coming up, Paul falls in love again, but someone from his past brings everything crashing down. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. And now back to the story. In 1929, 40-year-old movie executive Paul Byrne was asked to supervise auditions for an upcoming MGM film. It had been three years since Barbara Lamar died, and he was just starting to entertain the idea of dating again. Just then, a young actress caught Paul's eye. She was a slight five-foot-two with striking blonde hair. It was almost blindingly bright, similar to the color of champagne or a bolt of lightning. Her blue eyes were so deep and vivid that they almost hurt to look at. Even at 18 years old, Jean Harlow looked like a star. As captivated as he was, Paul didn't think Jean was right for the role. But he did call her the next night, hoping to offer up a consolation prize. Hello, this is Jean speaking. Jean? Paul Byrne from MGM. I have some unfortunate news. I'm afraid we've given the part to another actress. Oh, I'm very disappointed to hear that. Look, that role wasn't right for you anyhow. With that being said, I've been in this business for a very long time, 
And there's good, then there's great, and then there's you. And what you have is very special. <laughs> right. I'd hate to think about all the other actresses in Hollywood who've gotten this exact same phone call before. You'd be surprised. I'd really love to talk to you about your future. Perhaps tomorrow night over dinner? About my future, huh? So, just to clarify, it'll be strictly business? Well, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't hoping that maybe we could enjoy ourselves just a tiny bit more than that. So, a date? Sure. A date. Being the beautiful and charming young woman she was, Jean was no stranger to suitors, especially ones from the industry. But there was something about Paul. He had a sincerity about him that the others didn't. The two did go out, but after that, the relationship publicly appeared strictly professional. Both Jean and Paul were outspoken supporters of one another and would run into one another frequently, but the true nature of the relationship was fairly ambiguous. That is, until the night of June 7, 1930. Jean's breakout film, Hell's Angels, was premiering on Hollywood Boulevard. It felt as though the entirety of Los Angeles was packed into the streets surrounding Grauman's Chinese theater. And, of course, the crowd went wild as Jean stepped out of her limo wearing a bright white satin dress, looking perfect as ever. But the real showstopper was that she walked the red carpet arm in arm with none other than Paul Byrne. The last time anyone had seen the two of them out in public together was over a year ago. But amidst a sea of flashbulbs and screaming fans, the two looked like seasoned lovers. After the premiere, the two drifted apart and started seeing other people. Then came New Year's Eve, 1931. Paul's career had never been in better shape. He was eagerly awaiting the release of two films that he had a hand in making, and just about every movie made was written about in the tabloids. The same could be said for Jean Harlow. Hell's Angels was a massive success and catapulted her to fame. So when the two accompanied each other to multiple New Year's parties, it was all anyone could talk about. This time, their relationship seemed to be the real deal. The two were inseparable all night and well into the New Year. By the spring of 1931, it was impossible to open up a gossip column without seeing photographs of Jean and Paul, sharing a laugh outside the MGM lot. But trouble was brewing elsewhere. In the summer of 1931, Paul received a letter with a return address that caused his stomach to churn. The Algonquin Hotel. The same address he'd been sending checks to for nearly ten years. It was Dorothy. The letter was distressing, to say the least. Dorothy told Paul that she was eagerly saving up to come visit him in Los Angeles and had her sights set on starring in one of his films. Paul tried to dissuade his former partner from barging into his new life. He complained of financial problems that he was certainly not experiencing, but hoped that it might prevent her from coming to visit. And for a while, it seemed as though it worked. He went on with his life with Jean as if nothing had happened. But then in early 1932, another letter arrived. This time... It was from the manager of the Algonquin. Dear Mr. Byrne, I'm becoming concerned about Miss Millette. Her behavior has gone from somewhat strange to deeply unsettling. 
Her entire room is covered with magazines and newspaper clippings. She sits locked in there, mumbling about Hollywood and the Bible and how you're going to have her star in a film that will make her famous. I strongly suggest you check in on your friend and make sure she is well. And it was true. Dorothy had gotten worse. She had started wearing all black clothing and hardly left her room. She would talk to anyone who would listen about the voices that spoke to her and how Paul was going to direct an epic film depicting the events from the Bible that she would star in. She also frequently talked about her upcoming trip to Los Angeles. Soon after, Paul received yet another letter from Dorothy. She insisted on coming to California. Paul realized he couldn't stop her from traveling west, but may have been relieved that she planned to move to San Francisco. He recommended she stay at the Plaza Hotel, and it would be his treat. While a mutual friend speculated that Dorothy was trying to get closer to Paul, it seemed Paul had no intention of visiting his former flame in the city by the bay. On May 4, 1932, Dorothy arrived at the Plaza Hotel as planned, and for a while she kept to herself. Paul felt safe, but that wouldn't last long. Meanwhile, Paul's relationship with Jean was flourishing. By that year, the two were obsessed with each other and not afraid to show it. While Jean was out on a press tour for her latest film, the couple exchanged dozens of letters. They expressed their love over and over and even discussed the possibility of having a child one day. When Jean returned in the summer, she spent just about every waking moment with Paul. When they weren't working, they were glued to one another. Then, on June 18th, after a night of dancing and socializing, the two cuddled up in bed and found themselves in the midst of a life-changing conversation. Tonight was so lovely. I just don't think I can go on like this much longer. What on earth do you mean? It all feels so fleeting. I don't know. Maybe I sound crazy, but would you ever consider marrying me? Is that what you want? You know I do. (laughs) Then, yes. They wasted no time at all and headed straight for the marriage license bureau to make it official. The next morning, every newspaper had a picture of 21-year-old Jean and 42-year-old Paul standing hand in hand, looking as happy as two people could possibly look. The couple planned the ceremony for July 2nd, 1932. And as was expected, it was a lavish affair. Hundreds of gifts appeared at the doorstep, including over 1,200 pieces of glassware and rare pieces of china. While he did his best to enjoy married life, Paul was uneasy. Things with Dorothy were starting to flare back up again. He tried to ignore it, but soon matters became too pressing to disregard any longer. She was in San Francisco and she knew about Paul and Jean. Everyone did. After learning of her ex-lover's new marriage, she started threatening Paul's co-workers at MGM. Miss Millette, listen, there is nothing I can do here. Paul is his own man. I can't make him take you back and I certainly can't make him leave Jean. You don't have to. You just need to make him realize that it's ludicrous to pass up the opportunity to make my film. It's the Bible. It is the most beloved story known to man. And I am a talent that is not to be wasted. 
I'd make that Jean girl look like a street urchin. I cannot help you, ma'am. Please, why don't you just call Paul? You know what I'll do? I'll drive down to Hollywood and I'll tell everyone that Paul is my husband. That he left me for that hag. That he cheated on me with her. It'll ruin him. It'll ruin your studio. Your two biggest stars turn out to be homewreckers. I don't see that ending well for you. Please hold for one moment. On Saturday, September 3rd, MGM sent out a letter to Dorothy containing $100 that they hoped would keep her quiet. However, by the time the money reached the plaza in San Francisco, some theorized that Dorothy was already en route to Los Angeles. Then came Monday, September 5th, 1932. It was a beautiful morning in Los Angeles. It was Labor Day and the sun was shining. The day proceeded as usual with Paul's butler, John Carmichael, beginning his early morning duties. The house seemed unusually quiet. Jean and Paul always had music playing, and conversation usually bellowed all through the mansion they shared. But this morning, there was nothing. Carmichael found the silence chilling, and he headed cautiously into Paul and Jean's room. He scanned the luxurious master bedroom, but Paul was nowhere to be found. So he looked into Paul's walk-in closet. A dark crimson puddle caught his eye. Terrified, he inched closer. Splayed out in a pile of coagulated blood, lay Paul Byrne. Carmichael fainted on the spot. Paul's maid heard the butler's limp body hit the floor, and she came running into the closet. The sight terrified her, and she bolted from the gruesome scene, screaming at the top of her lungs. This prompted the rest of Paul's staff to make the same discovery. It wasn't long before the police arrived at the Byrne Harlow mansion. Concerned MGM representatives showed up around the same time and began to search the house. One of Paul's former colleagues was shocked to find a handwritten entry that looked like it was just added to the couple's guest book. Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand that last night was only a comedy. The executive tore out the page to get a better look and placed it back in the book for police to find. It read like a suicide note, and for the next 30 years, the death of Paul Byrne was seen as just that, a befuddling suicide. A man who had it all figured out abruptly took his own life for no reason at all. Another example of the dark, corrupting forces of Hollywood. But as friends of the esteemed film executive looked into his death, they began to realize that there was much more to the story. And every piece of information seemed to lead back to the same person. Dorothy Millette. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Paul Byrne. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Paul Byrne, The Life and Death of the MGM Director and Husband of Harlow by E.J. Fleming to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, Kimlin Tran, Laith Walshlager, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.